the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning again, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing in our series with the book uh, recently published by myself called Homecoming. How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And where we left off last time, we had um, spoken about that the uh, New Covenant, and again, I'm, not, I'm just going to give you a real quick, quick review because we have a lot of new material to cover, but um, very briefly, we finished last week with explaining that the New Covenant... Um, of Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one through 34, um, and also of Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, was not so much a what as it was a who. And we explained that um, the Father had a conversation with his divine son, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, that's his name in Hebrew, Jesus the Messiah, and he says on two occasions, once in Isaiah chapter 42 and again in chapter 49, he uh, basically informed his son that his son was, was the new covenant, not written on tablets of stone. He, the son, was to be the new covenant. And we explained also that this new covenant was supposed to be an inside job. In other words, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one says, here are the Jews in captivity. They're in a bad situation. They're in Babylon. They have rejected God. They have re- rebelled against him. They have bought into the uh, ways of all the pagan tribes that uh, were in their immediate area. They intermarried. They basically took on the ways of the very tribes that Father God warned them about and said, don't do this. This is not going to turn out well. Um, They have different gods, little g. They have idols. They are going to draw you away from me. And as as has happened, um, we see two things happened earlier with the uh, ten tribes of northern kingdom were um, taken over by the Assyrians. And in the southern kingdom now, uh, we have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they've been taken captive by the Babylonians, and they've been placed into exile up in Babylon. And um, this is where the prophet Jeremiah is hearing from God. And God is hearing the cries of the Hebrew people who, they're in a mess. They're in a very bad situation. And they're beginning to realize the grave errors that they made, and they want to come back to a relationship um, with their father. They want to admit their errors. They want to acknowledge their wrongdoing and their rebellion, quite honestly. And in their prayers... Um, it's basically them trying to acknowledge that they need to change the way they think. 
in the way they have been thinking. And that's what repentance means. It signifies changing the way one thinks about something. And as they're asking for uh, mercy, they're asking for forgiveness, they're repenting before God, um, Father God reveals to the prophet Jeremiah, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. They didn't keep the covenant earlier that we made at Sinai, at Shavuot. Shavuot is the Jewish word for um, the celebration of Pentecost. And we talked about that last week, that that contract, that covenant, if you will, was uh, not a promise for an act. It was a promise for another promise. There was a bilateral contract. That's what you call in, in the law a bilateral contract, a promise in exchange for another promise. Prom- the problem was the Hebrews didn't keep their end of the, of the bargain. They didn't keep their end of the terms or the stipulations or the provisions of that promise in exchange for co- promise contract. Father God kept his end of the bargain. The Hebrew people did not. And even after they uh, cross the River Jordan and they have a new leader after Moses uh, dies and then they have uh, Joshua taking them over into the promised land, um, still the problems continued. And thus we see Father God saying, I am going to give them, they, them being the Hebrew people, my, my children, my Hebrew children, a new covenant which is different in many ways than the Old Covenant. The primary one is that the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. And we talked about this last week. They didn't, Hebrew people did not yet have the, um, the anointing, the download of the Holy Spirit yet. And they were realizing that the law was given them because of their trans, transgressions and it's interesting to see in the New Testament that Paul the Apostle, who also was Jewish, in fact, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a rabbi, he was trained under Gimaliel, so he knew his Jewish culture and law and structure. And basically, he explained, look, the original law of, of the Mosaic Covenant at, given at Sinai, the purpose of that was uh, added because of the Hebrews' rebellion to keep them in a state of not committing transgressions, which are going to get them in in trouble, very big trouble. But what Paul explained was that the law, the Mosaic law, written on stones, actually was a tutor bringing him to the knowledge of Christ. And that's important to keep in mind because what we said last week was the New Covenant um, is Christ in the form of the Word of God. Now, I don't have time to go over all of that as review. I urge you to go back and listen to last week's show. We really laid out uh, kind of a step-by-step that Jesus announces in Matthew chapter 5, look, I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. This is part of the Olivet Discourse. He said, rather, I have come to fulfill them, both the law and the prophets. And in the complete Jewish Bible, we mentioned the, the translation was, instead of to fulfill them, he said to complete them. So we concluded based on using many verses that we don't have time to go over again, that Jesus, as the Word, that was his name when he arrives in John chapter 1, very first uh, 14 verses talks about, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and was and is God. And and then it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so we explained also that in John fourteen twenty three, Jesus is saying, if you want to have a relationship with me, if you want to have, if you want to know me, not just about me, but in, in your heart, 
um, here's what's got to happen. And the first time he says this in John 14, 21, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, um, and then in John 14, 23, he changes it just a bit, and he says, if you love me, keep my word. And my Father will love you. And listen, and then John 14, 23 says, and we, plural, both Father and Son, Jesus, will come and make our home with you, our abode with you, our domicile with you, our residence with you. And we concluded, look, this new covenant is way improved and superior than the old especially when you go all the way back to the beginning, the fact that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were with God. God was with them in the garden. There was a very uh, noticeable, tangible presence of God interchanged between God and the first human parents. But it never says in the, script, in the, uh, in the uh, Jewish Testament, it never says God was in them. And we pointed out the verses in Revelation chapter 3, that 320 to 321, where Jesus is standing at the door knocking, and he has an open invitation. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens to me, I will come. Listen to what he says. He didn't say, I, I will be with them. He says, I will come into them, and I will dine with them and them with me. Well, that is way more interior than what we first had of being with God. And all of a sudden, this new covenant is written on two places. It's placed on our minds, and it's written in our hearts. And so now we have the actual Godhead entering into us as vessels, that is way more deep than what was available in the earlier covenants. And in fact, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, which is often used at communion services all the time. And, and um, here is Jesus. Now, Paul's explaining what happened at the, at the uh, Last Supper, but... Um, at the Last Supper, I think we, were, we covered that in Luke 22. He basically said, um, after he showed them the bread and broke the bread, and he said, this is my body. But when he got to the cup part, um, he talked about, take the cup, and he says, and this is the cup of the new covenant. Now, he used those words. Jesus used those words, the new covenant. Well, that's the same New Covenant, which was announced in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which said, in that day I will place my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is what you call a makeover. This is what you call a metamorphosis, a transformation from the inside out. And what we, we explored, you know, was why is this so much more important? Well, we looked at Revelations 3, where Jesus is making this personal invitation in, in Revelations 3.20. And, um, and then he says, just at the end of 3.20, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me. But check out the very next verse. Look at where this is going. If we allow this next level of intimacy uh, to happen. He says, to him who overcomes, this is the very next uh, verse in uh, Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me, you ready, on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Folks, this is a whole new dimension. We're starting to learn what this new covenant is all about and it isn't about dying and going to a place called heaven. It's about inviting the Godhead into us so that we can be part and parcel of this thing called the kingdom of God. 
kingdom of God is not only a place. It can be a place. But in this context, we're talking about a place, the domain where God exclusively is king. Kingdom. The domain of the king. And that's, isn't that the ultimate question that we all ask in our lives? Who is king of my life? Uh, and we talked you know, last week about, you know, Gentile Christians are very good about, yeah, I need a Savior, and this is great. Of course, of course, they think salvation is transportation from point A to point B, from earth to heaven, and they've missed the entire point. They've missed the entire point. The Jews in their complete Jewish Bible use a different word than salvation, and I think it explains more deeply what's really going on. They use a different word every time, well, I won't say every time, often when the word salvation comes up, they use another word called deliverance. We need deliverance. And this is what we explained last week. God still has a problem on his hands called rebellion against him. And we pointed out last week that rebellion did not begin on earth. It began in heaven, Isaiah 14, 12. That was your homework. And then go to Ezekiel 28, verse 14. That also was your homework. Where did the rebellion begin? It did not begin on earth. It manifested on earth in Genesis chapter 3 when everything blew up because our human parents agreed about lies and suggestions that were made by the spiritual enemy who began the rebellion in heaven. That's why I wanted you to do those that homework. And once we figure this out, that this is kingdom versus kingdom, spiritual, but they're fighting over a material creation. They're fighting over us as human beings because we are part and parcel of that material creation. Well, what are you talking about? Well, Genesis talks about Father God taking a handful of dirt, soil, it's called Adam because of of its color, which is red, and he breathed life into this soil, this part of the earth, and he made us in his image. In his likeness. The angels can't say that. They're created beings, but they cannot make that claim. And and we discussed last week, why is Satan so interested in what happens to us dust balls, so to speak, us mud balls? It's because of the authority of, that Father God gave us in the very beginning of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to tend the earth, to keep it, to steward it. But here are the key words, to have dominion over it. And there's the long list of animals that are under our dominion. Now, he didn't give that to fallen angels. He did not give that level of authority to fallen angels. He gave it to us, human beings, exclusively, because we, in his design, his perfect, sovereign, divine design, made us in his image and in his likeness. And he said, they are an extension of what I look like, of what I am. And they will image that off. As we will see in the Hebrew covenants to, to the people of the nations... And so the enemy has been furious ever since that happened, and he's trying to prove God wrong. If you don't believe me, go read this book called Job. 42 chapters of the divine Father God, creator of the earth, and this rebellious angel fighting over what? What was their focus? It was a human being, a guy. But God wanted to brag. 
to the enemy, to the fallen angel, about this guy. And his name was Job. It's the oldest book of the Bible. And that whole argument in the first three chapters describes why there's this obsession to indwell human beings, to influence human beings, to have control over human beings as Satan wants. But what God wants is he wants to have an intimate relationship of trust, of faith, of of us depending on him as our Father who gives us our identity, all our provisions, all our protection. That's all in the Lord's Prayer, those three elements of what fathers give us. And here's... Here's the enemy realizing he may have some residual power after he was kicked out of heaven in Isaiah 14, but he doesn't have the authority that mankind was given. And in order to operate in the earth, he has to convince creatures, human beings, who did receive legally the permission to have dominion. That's called legal authority. He had to have them be tricked and deceived to hand over their authority to him so he could manifest his power over the material creation. And what we talked about last week was the material creation was not ever, ever created to be run by the angelic kingdom, either loyal or disloyal angelic kingdom. It was made for human beings, and that is the source of the competition. The enemy cannot stand that he was excluded after he began his rebellion in Isaiah 14, way up in the second heavens. He was a covering cherub. That's how close he was to God. The proximity didn't have anything to do with preventing a rebellion. He was one of the two covering cherubs of the mercy seat. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant, you'll see the mercy seat sits on top. It says in Ezekiel 28, starting at verse 14, that he was a covering cherub. That's how close he was to the presence of God, and that wasn't good enough for him. He still rebelled. You still see the five, uh, what we call the I wills, of the rebellion in Isaiah um, 14. And one of the things that he said or claimed on the five I wills, one of the I wills was I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And you have to stop and examine that claim and ask yourself the question, when did God, Father God, ever give angels thrones? What you'll find as you explore that is that he didn't ever give them thrones over the material creation. And as we just read in Revelation 3, when we're talking about having the new covenant in the form of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, excuse me, notice what he says. We'll read it again. It's worth um, pointing this out because it tells, explains to you about thrones. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the door of your heart. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and him with me. To him who who overcomes, now this is the very next verse, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Thrones belong to the Godhead. And Jesus goes on, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It can't be more clear that thrones are the exclusive jurisdiction of the Godhead, but he's also saying, by the way, you human beings are eligible to partake in that. And that doesn't talk about ruling and reigning exclusively from heaven. I know Ephesians says we're seated in high places. That's true. But that's not the point. If you go on to two, two chapters more, Revelation 5 says, check this out, 5.9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, they're talking about Jesus here, to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood 
Notice it didn't say redeemed us to heaven. It says redeemed us to God. God's always been the, the goal, okay? Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now check this out. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that's, that's us. That's the people of the nations. In verse 10, check this out. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign. It didn't say in heaven. Where does it say? We shall reign on the earth. That's two chapters after Jesus says, hey, if you're an overcomer, then you also will get an opportunity to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and I'm sitting with my father on his throne. You see how that reverses all everything? The rebellion began in heaven and if we go untransformed without allowing this new covenant to become part of who we are, we're kind of missing the whole point. The new covenant changes not us in location, it changes us in transformation into the image and the likeness of God. We're right back, circular, returning full circle back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We will see you after the break. God bless. Welcome back, saints. So we are talking about what happens when we invite Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the new covenant, into us inside of us as the <laughs> Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. I will place my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and again we have if we have something in the Old Testament we have to find it also in the new to make sure it's consistent with what God's plan is and again Jeremiah thirty one thirty one through 34 is found in two places in the New Testament Hebrews chapter 8 and it's right here, eight eight, chapter eight, verse eight. And he says, "For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, "Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah." not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day which I, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them. They breached the contract. Verse 10, this is Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I, listen, why is he doing this? He's, look at the end of verse 10 in Ch Hebrews chapter 8. He's explaining why he's putting as a new covenant the laws in our minds and writing them on our hearts. And it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was the whole point. It's a, all about relationship. It's to know God more intimately, more internally, more deeply, more profoundly, more realistically. You invite God to come into your life at that level, you cannot remain the same. You can't. I mean, that's where we start seeing references from Paul where he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Yes, he is, especially if he allows the new covenant of Jesus to be placed in those two strategic locations within us. So, God's looking for a relationship that's way more close, way more intimate. But I wanted to point this out to you. He's also looking for an internal house. This new covenant writing uh, within us actually sets up the answer to a question that God asks in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. 
Thus says the Lord. 66.1 of Isaiah. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? Now let's go back into that verse. Notice he didn't say heaven is my home. He didn't say that. He said heaven is my throne. We're talking about the kingdom of God here. And earth is my footstool. Well, that gives us an idea of the magnitude of of this God that we serve. But isn't it interesting that he makes these declarations of how large he is, how majestic he is, what the magnitude of him happens to be by declaring heaven's my throne and earth is my footstool. That is a very large God that we serve. But check this out. He asks a question right after that. Where's the house that you will build for me? And you have to stop and say, well, do we have to, we have to build you a house? You just declared who you are in the heavens and, and on the earth. But the hev- heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. He wants something else. He's looking for something else. Where's the house that you will build me? And where's the place of my rest? And so the question that I had when I first started studying this, I thought, you mean God's not at rest unless he's dwelling in his house that I'm supposed to build him? And then the verse 2, right after 60, Isaiah 66, 1, check it out. He answers his own question. Because his question was where, two where's. Where's the house that you will build for me? And where's the place of my rest? And I was thinking, is God not at rest? Even though he's the creator of the universe, there's still something he's looking for. So let's check out verse two. Here's the answer. For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist. Yes, okay. So those, that's what he's talking about. He made the heavens and the earth, and all those things exist because of him. Okay, But check out the second half of verse 2. Says the Lord. He's going to answer his own questions. Where? Where's the house that you'll build for him, and where's the place of his rest? So here, check out the second half of verse 2. But on this one I will look. On him, all of a sudden stop. You say, wait a minute. You mean your house, your vessel, your, I'm sorry, you're, you're looking on a vessel for your house? This is not going to be built out of mortar and brick and concrete and steel and everything. When we picture some sort of edifice, we think of construction materials. He's saying, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. He's talking about a human being. And who trembles at my word. So when I saw that, I started to ask some questions of myself and thinking, how can God not be at rest? He's God. But yet he's saying he's looking for something in addition, in spite of him being the creator of heaven, being creator of earth. I'm going to read this from the um, complete Jewish Bible. Again, 66, 1 and 2 of Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, says Adonai, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house could you build for me? What? What are you talking about, Father? Here's the next line. What sort of place could you devise for my rest? The only conclusion that I took away was, was God is not at rest until he's actually indwelling the one, the vessel whom he made, and this vessel has invited him to come in. What, what did we read in Revelations 3.20? Jesus was at standing at the door 
and knocking. Well, the door of what? The door of our hearts. He wants a relationship. He doesn't want us to know about him. He wants us to relationally know him. Well, why is that a big deal? Because it's the definition of eternal life. Eternal life, John 17, 3, Jesus said this the night before he died, is to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Now, is that question, is that to know about them mentally, like the Greeks would do? with their elevation of the mind as the apex of their culture to say we can figure out everything, including God? Or is that more an experiential experience based on the Hebrew walking out and experiencing God? Say, our history is the experience with God. In other words, they lived it. They walked it. They experienced it. Now look at verse 2. The kind of person on whom I look with favor. So he's, ans- he's answering the question, what kind of house could you build for me and what sort of place could you, divide, uh, could you, could you devise for my rest? And in verse 2 he says, didn't I, I myself make all these things? This is how they all came to be. Second half of verse 2. The kind of person on whom I look with favor. He's not talking about a house as we think of a house. He's talking about residing within us. That's why when we talk about the new covenant as an inside job, that's the depth and level of profundity, if you will, that we're talking about. This is deep stuff. The kind of person on whom I look with favor is one with a poor and humble spirit who trembles at my word. He wants to dwell inside of us, and he starts with this son. Jesus announced the process, the protocol. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. And we Gentile Christians were all taught, whether you were a Catholic or whether you are Protestant, no one gets to heaven but by me. That's what we were taught. It doesn't say that. And heaven is not going, dying and going to heaven, contrary to popular belief, is not the biblical definition of eternal life. So, this is relational. This is heavy stuff. By the way, there's another place where eternal life is described, and that's in not just John 14, 6. It's also, I believe, in John chapter 12. At the very end of the chapter, let me see if I can find it here real quick. I'll read it to you out of the complete Jewish Bible. This is starting at verse 49 and 50. This is Jesus speaking. He says, For I have not spoken on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me has given me a command, namely, what to say and how to say it. Verse 50. And I know that his command is eternal life. So, I I say, or rather what I say is simply what the Father has told me to say. So that's another dimension. Not only is eternal life knowing God relationally, as we see in John 14, 6. Oh, I'm sorry, in John 17, 3. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's John 17, 3. But look at John Twelve fifty, and I know that his command is eternal life. Well, that's the two times I could find the definition of eternal life. Number one, it was knowing relationally God and then proving that I know him by keeping his commands. Wow. Where did you get that? What's the, well, I just read it to you. Out of John twelve fifty, but there's an. I love the simplicity of the gospel sometimes, and I tell some people, "Hey, can you say one two three four? And they say, "Yeah, one two three four. And I said, "That's how we prove that we know God. That's how we prove that we're experiencing eternal life. Eternal life, if it's if it's knowing God, you can have 
eternal life right here and right now. You don't have to wait till you die and go to someplace, okay? So let's read that. 1 John chapter 2. So we, that's why we did 1, 2, 3, 4. So the first epistle of John, chapter 2 of the first epistle of John, verses 3 and 4. That's why we say 1, 2, 3, 4. And I'll read it out of the New King James. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Boy, is that a showstopper in this modern, unfortunately Gnostic gospel age where we, we preach basically obeying God as legalism or somehow it's religious works? No, actually, it's, it's the key whether you have a, a relationship of eternal life or not. Check out the next verse, verse 4. He who says... I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Look at five. But whoever keeps his word, can you see that? Commandments and word, pretty much synonymous. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are, now notice, doesn't say with him, we are in him. You now see the connection of why this new covenant experience, which is Jesus coming into us, is to accomplish a deeper, more meaningful, significant relationship of personal, relational, experiential knowledge of who God is. And God wants to do the same. It's a two-way street. It's going to take something that we haven't been taught as far as level of commitment. How much time do we devote to this? How much energy do we devote to this relationship? I often ask people, you know, when, um, when you first dedicated your life to Christ and you got saved at Passover, um, and you say, yes, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Well, the Savior part, everybody can relate to that, but the, it's the Lord part that we have trouble with. And I ask people, did you give every element of, of you, your body, to, to Christ when you made that commitment to him or when you got your water baptized? Of course I did. Of course I did. That's okay, awesome. And then I asked them, did that include not just your spiritual life? Um, did that also include your, your thought life? Your thought life. And I'll tell you what, the pauses are long and what they what we use in pregnant pauses they're very long pauses because they're thinking who who, where did I say I have to hand over my thought life to him when I when I made him lord and savior your thought life Carolyn Leaf who is a South African neuroscientist a, a strong believer in the lord she's done research on this and they this is an average this is not hard and fast but she said we have about 30,000 thoughts a day on average, during our um, 16-hour wake cycle. And um, I've had people come up and say, well, where does it say that I have to turn over my thought life? Well, I take them to a couple of places. Um, I t- take them to Romans 12, um, 1 and 2, and um, that is an experience. Uh, this is Paul. To the Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know what? The Jews didn't have to do that in the Jewish Testament. They had to give the Lord one day a week called the Shabbat, the Shabbat rest. When we're talking about the new covenant, this is a raising of the bar. Because God's saying, I am going to have a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. There's some things that, that are going to be required when we have this new covenant written, placed in our minds and written in our heart. And one of those requirements is right here in Romans 12, verse 1 present myself a living sacrifice? Wait a minute, I thought that's what Jesus did, and I don't have to do any of that stuff. 
Well, Jesus did do it, and it was perfect, but it was to get us initially saved at Passover. And the idea was to not stay in Egypt after you're delivered from death. It's The idea is to leave Egypt and go on a journey to get to know God. Well, where do you come up with that? Deuteronomy chapter 8 explains very clearly why there had to be a road trip <laughs> with God and his people because they didn't know him. They were enslaved for 430 years under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And they needed to get reacquainted. Well, there's nothing like taking a road trip where all of a sudden you're out in the middle of nowhere and you don't know where your next meal's coming from. You don't know where your drink, next drink of water's coming from. You don't know whether you're going to have shoes for your feet and clothes on your back. You don't even know where to go unless there's a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Because that's where, when it stops, that's where the food's going to be the next day, called manna. And Yeshua's telling us, Jesus is telling us, I am the bread of life. You need to not only consume the lamb, but you need to eat the bread. It's an inside job. We need to bring him in as the word, which is placed on our minds and written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now check out Romans 12, 2. This has to go back to where do we have to give him our thought life. And do not be conformed to this world. Ooh, that means come out of Egypt. That means you were saved for a reason. Saved was not really a diploma. The Passover experience was not really a diploma. It was more of a scholarship. It was all expenses paid. It's a free gift. We understand that. You can't earn it. But that scholarship was for a reason of getting to know God so you can live because knowing God is eternal life. And it says here, do not be, where are we? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There you go. It doesn't say transported. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what's the perfect and good and acceptable will of God. That doesn't happen. You won't even, if you don't give God your thought life, you won't even know what God's will is in a particular situation with a particular circumstance with a particular individual on a particular moment or, or day. And he's saying here, Paul, saying you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's your thought life. Oh, I've got another verse for you. Um, talking about spiritual warfare and thought life. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Okay. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Where are strongholds against the knowledge of God? Well, that's in your mind. Look at verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That doesn't mean about knowing God or knowing about God. It means relationally it's going to interfere with your trusting God with your depending on, on God, whether you're looking to God. But look at, look at what it says here in, the, in 2 Corinthians 10, second part of verse 5. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, going to the complete Jewish Bible on that one, I actually prefer this translation in this sense. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Here we go. Although we do not... I'm sorry, strike that. Although we do live in the world, we do not wage war in a worldly way because the weapons we use to wage war are not worldly. On the contrary, they have God's power for demolishing strongholds. We demolish arguments and every arrogance that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. Check out this part coming up. We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Make it obey Messiah. Verse 6, and when you have become completely obedient, then we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. This is an experiential walk that God wants to take us on. The goal is to basically get an intimate relationship established with God, where every moment of the day we're saying, Father, we want you to send us your Son to be the lamp unto our feet, 
Picture yourself in a dark place and you have a lantern there and you cannot see except for that lamp. Well, if it's down by your feet, you're talking about maybe the next six or seven or eight inches at, on the next uh, step that you're going to take. In other words, you're depending on God moment by moment. This sounds radically different than what we were taught. Yes, it does. But it's the kingdom. It's the, it's the story of the kingdom of God. And kingdom means rulership. Kingdom means governance. Kingdom means government. And when talks Isaiah 9 that we use a lot of time around Christmas time, the prophetical words of this Prince of Peace who's coming, talking about Jesus on his birthday, it, listen, it says he's showing up with the government on his shoulders. What Jesus preached and what John the Baptist preached was the coming of a kingdom, of a government, of a rule, of order, of God's order of things, of his design of things. Because everything on earth ever since Genesis chapter 3, when the rebellion was brought down here and we bought into it with our first parents, it has been chaos, calamity after calamity, disaster after disaster. And we're saying in the Lord's Prayer, we don't say your kingdom go. We're saying the only thing that we were taught, which was, Father, your kingdom come. Well, Jesus was on earth when he's teaching us that. He's saying we need to bring God's kingdom and governance here. And how do we know that? The next line, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's how we know God's kingdom is inside of us and impacting those around us. Welcome to the kingdom. See you next week. I hope you have many simple truth moments. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.